Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first interview episode of the Haskin Cast podcast, this being episode number two. And I'm very excited to have my first guest on the show, James Sizemore. James is a very, very intelligent orchestrator, composer, brilliant business mind, especially for the music industry, which is a very tough industry to penetrate. He's come up with a really incredible marketing strategy for this new album, but the album itself I'm most excited about because it is easily one of my new favorite albums from start to finish. It's just an amazing journey. And the marketing strategy that uh, he and I are going to talk about is pretty pretty brilliant too, and I think very effective. So I'm very excited to have James on the show. And to introduce his interview segment, I'm going to play part of the opening track of the album. This piece is called Smashed to Pieces. I'd like to welcome James Sizemore to the show. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's uh, so glad to be the uh, first guest on your inaugural podcast here, Scott. Well, thank you. It, it, uh, it's great to have you. And uh, it's kind of, uh, I, I wanted it because I really want to talk about your new album. And we, I want to talk about your history a little bit, but I really want to talk about the new album. And, but you were the first podcast that I ever edited when I started working for Scorecast. You had just finished up uh, Desolation of Smog. And uh, you were headed to, to the premiere the night that you guys did the interview. And since that was the first one I edited, I thought, well, it'd be neat if you were the first guest on the show. And then you came out with a brilliant album. So double reasons now. Oh, that's so perfect. What perfect kismet. Yeah, uh, coming full circle, I guess. Huh? I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So let's, uh, before we get into to the album, let's just give uh, the audience a brief histor- history. So you do a lot of writing, but you also do a lot of orchestration work. Uh, I think orchestrator is one of those jobs that people really don't understand the depth and responsibilities of it. Can you give us kind of an overview of what you do as an orchestrator? Well, I think the role of the orchestrator has changed quite a bit in the history of the film industry is what I'm speaking about specifically. Mm -hmm. There was a time when I think um, the orchestrator would, would get a pencil sketch, you know, and it might have indications of woodwinds and strings and brass and they would actually blow that up to the orchestral score, um, working from the composer's sketch. More and more so these days, I think the orchestrator is just transcribing a piece of electronic music 
for orchestra because mm-hmm. um, the way that it's, the technology has evolved is the studios and the filmmakers expect the highest quality demos. And then once the demos are approved, they're like practically done. I mean, they want to have the exact plans, the exact idea of what it's going to be before you get into the recording session, obviously. So the demos are done with such great detail, it just comes down to the orchestrator to um, to just recreate that as accurately as possible. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means um, making cheats and things. Like there's things you can do with MIDI and with computers you can't do with an orchestra and vice versa. So mm-hmm. that's where the art really comes in. Um, my orchestration work has mostly come down to the work that I've done with composer Howard Shore. So I always felt very grateful that I was able to um, work off of a pencil sketch. Howard would write a four-line sketch, we'd copy it into Sibelius, and then I got to do the music programming, creating the demos and updating them and revising them per the filmmaker's request, and then taking that and creating my own orchestral score out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I was working for the Hobbit movies with the brilliant... Conrad Pope, who's probably the preeminent orchestrator in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I always had him. So my scores would always, after I created my scores, I would go to him. So I always had that, um, you know, safety net Mm -hmm. beneath me to always make sure that it was going to be appropriate for the players because he was there with the orchestra and he knew what the players could do best and how things would translate. So we always had that kind of relationship going into it. And also how, how the realistic, uh, what you're writing so that it's real for actual players to play versus, like you said, what you can do in MIDI. Right, exactly. There's a lot of things like, um, you know, you can hold down a, a brass patch for six bars and do a large crescendo and really get a dramatic kind of uh, swell in the sound of your MIDI samples. But if you're doing that with a live brass section, then you probably want to save your tubas for the last bar or maybe your trumpet so you can have some reinforcements to come in to really build up that crescendo. I mean, also, you know, you can get a big brassy French horn sound in your MIDI, whereas with the orchestra, sometimes you, to get a bright French horn sound, you actually need to use an oboe, an octave above, to just accentuate that first harmonic, you know? So mm-hmm. there is, you know, a lot of knowledge of how the orchestra works and a lot of back and forth to um, make the two translate. Sure. But yeah, that is really the world of the orchestrators, taking these demos that have been approved and translating what's in the electronics to work with live musicians. Was it a difficult process in the beginning to get the feel for how to work with his music? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, there's a huge learning curve. I mean, the thing about um, Howard's work is that he's an artist in the true sense of the word in the sense that he doesn't want to do the same process as everybody else. You know, I, I, I think it's really easy for people in the film industry to all want to say, this is how you do it, you know, and to say, oh, all the scores should look the same and they should have the same layout and they should have the same formatting. And this is how the score should be laid out. Whereas Howard has always been one to kind of defy those conventions and come up with his own notation mechanisms and his own methods. So there was definitely a long learning curve. But you know, Howard and I have been working together for a long time now. So, sure. you know, it's a secondhand, um, it's a shorthand that we have now. It, it, it's kind of second nature to uh, be able to make those understandings. Sure. But we're also not t- talking about simple 
orchestra music. We're talking about very detailed, long pieces, lots of heavy percussion and and brass and, uh, you know, uh, very active strings. That couldn't have been easy to jump into. Yeah, well, it's nice when, uh, specifically, I guess I'm really kind of talking about the Hobbit movies right now Mm -hmm. because that was so much orchestration involved and, you know, the most heavy lifting I've had to do in terms of working on a film in general and also doing uh, orchestral scores, but there's a precedent there because you have Lord of the Rings. So I had spent a few years preparing um, the Lord of the Rings live projection, so... I was preparing the scores and updating all the orchestral scores and getting all the synchronization and technology together. So I knew the Lord of the Rings music backwards and forwards. Oh, you know, yeah. I knew exactly what that sound was. So when it came time to do the Hobbit movies, I already had that skill set. I already had that understanding of what you know these films should sound like. Mm-hmm. So when you when you guys go into a new project now that obviously the the all six movies are done and you're going into something completely different does that learning curve start over or is it something that you've just built a good enough relationship and you understand his his composing now to where you could pretty much orchestrate anything he does Um yeah I th- I think each project is kind of different you know um and that's what's so fresh about you know, working with Howard is that the way that he approaches each score, he kind of wants to start with a blank slate and redefine how he's going to do it. You know, he's, mm-hmm. you know, like if you look at his over of his work of the repertoire that he's created over the years, it, um, not that much of it sounds like Lord of the Rings. You know, right. there's got Lord of the Rings and there's Hobbit, but then there's you know things like. Cosmopolis or Maps to the Stars or, you know, the projects he's done with David Cronenberg, not to mention mm-hmm. things like Single White Female or Big. Right. You know, they all have very different kind of sounds and approaches. Mm-hmm. So there is that. Each project that he does kind of, you know, um, is, you know, a different, fresh approach. And more and more so, we're trying to um, get out of some of the paradigms of the film industry we're trying to do you know to not do demos you know not do orchestral midi demos but to do you know live piano playback or hire four or five musicians or finding ways to re-approach the demo process and that limits the films that you can work on i mean the big studio films they really want to hear really detailed demos but Mm -hmm. Those big studio films, everybody wants to do those movies, you know, because, well, they pay well, but also because it's big and popular and it's prestige and stuff. But they're so messy. I mean, (laughs) you know, they can be so difficult. And there's so many cooks in the kitchen and you're getting notes from so many people and the picture is changing so dramatically. And, you know, it can kind of suck some of the fun out of it. So to work on smaller independent films that might not have quite the same huge budgets but have uh, much more rewarding music applications, I mm-hmm. think is much more interesting and much more exciting for me, at least. And I know that Howard is inclined to do that, those kind of projects as well. I think, too, you're, you're also, I would imagine, allowed a little bit more freedom. I'm, I mean, you've got the indie guys that are trying to have the Hollywood feel, 
so that they can just roll into those more major motion pictures. But I think you have a lot more independent directors that think outside the box and would allow you, especially with, with the experience that you guys have, a little more latitude to create something that's not the Hollywood sound. Exactly. And I think there's a real um, taste for that, you know, um, more and more so. The the composers being hired or, you know, outside of the, you know, the just, you know, the popular film composer of the day. And, and a lot of people are hiring artists mm-hmm. and people who they connect with on a musical level outside of the world of filmmaking. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of that. I think it could be also a double-edged sword, though. I mean, I've had directors approach me, and, and they'll give me the script, and I'll read it, and I'll ask, what you know, do you have something particular in mind you want musically? And they might say something like, I really like industrial music. Okay, but what do you want for your film? Well, I really like industrial right. music, and that may not be what I see as working at all with the film, and I have turned down jobs because of that. Uh I, I think there's that, but the directors that you want to work with are going to give you the leeway, maybe give you a direction, but, you know, kind of understand that you guys are the experts in what's going to be best for the film. Yeah, and more and more so, you know, I, I agree with you completely. Yeah, you have to be careful about, um, you know, going into projects, especially on smaller projects where the idea of because film music is a particular kind of thing you know Mm -hmm. i mean it's like it's very different than the way that uh you know music for just listening is designed and how it's created and sometimes it's like writing music with one hand tied behind your back because Mm -hmm. it's not about the music it's about the film and i always see you know so many musicians approach me and they're like oh i really want to do music for movies or i really want to license my music for movies and um you know i tell them oh well if you want to do that then go study filmmaking you know yeah. understand the mechanisms of film and how music works and what the role is and how it shapes tempo and pacing and how it frames shots and you know how it really works for character development and creating continuity and unity and what it means to even do film music you know Mm -hmm. so uh i I think there is a a valuable kind of um understanding to really dig into that world and um it's definitely a particular thing film music yeah it is and it's designed to be something that's more felt than heard unless except for certain times where it's really meant to be a character almost in the film like you know using the the classic example of jaws that's specifically used as a trigger but in general the music should just be there to enhance what's going on and not dominate it yeah and i and i must say that you know my favorite part of the filmmaking process is really the collaboration is like working together with a team of people who's all contributing to make something bigger than anything you can just create. And I really like that back and forth and the collaboration and, you know, and I have a great appreciation for good ideas. You know, mm-hmm. I'll think, Oh, I, this is a good idea. I'm really happy with what I'm doing until somebody presents an idea that's better. And then when I see it elevated to a better place because of a good idea, then that becomes a really rewarding experience for me at the same time. It means you're always collaborating, you know, Mm -hmm. and your creative idea is, you know, uh, only one part of the puzzle, which is, I think, what led me to wanting to really release my own album of music just completely outside of those constructs and that framing and really be able to create music that's just, you know, straight from my head and my heart that's not dictated by 
a grander uh, collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that certainly makes sense. And, and I definitely want to talk to you about that experience because as someone who spends most of their time being the team themselves, uh, it is quite different when you get to work with other people. But before we get to that, uh, I, I want to ask you because you you know you you had mentioned the difference in film music. You've done some writing for music libraries, and I see ads all the time. Filmmaker needs this kind of piece of music. Filmmaker needs that. And I think, obviously, there's some rift with the composer or the composer isn't able to write that particular type of piece because we can't do everything. And that's just, you know, it's it's just not possible. Um, but when I, when I see films, a lot of times you can almost tell which songs were licensed and which weren't because they, they have a different sound to them, a different feel. They don't really fit in with the film, whereas they might work for the scene, but for the overall score, there's a disconnect in the continuity. When you were writing for libraries, how did you approach how, how detailed the music was going to be? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I like to think that, you know, one of the skill sets that film composers bring to the table is their versatility, is that they have a really wide range an understanding of all different kinds of music and they can kind of bring that expertise and knowledge to the table and create, you know, a bluegrass track one day an orchestral track another day and a piece of, you know, um, house music the next day or whatever the case may be. And so to really have that kind of background, I think is what really separates some of my favorite film composers you know like christopher leonard's for example he's all over the place he can Mm -hmm. do like a hip-hop score and then an orchestral score and uh i've always admired that i think that's really cool i'm a big believer in craft i really like the idea of developing a skill set and you know i like great ideas and innovative approaches but for me i'm more impressed by uh, uh, you know, a painting, you know, that that shows incredible realism than um, something like a Jackson Pollock painting where he's just throwing paint on the canvas. Mm-hmm. While I appreciate the innovative idea that he had by throwing paint on the canvas, it, the craft isn't quite there, you know, that skill set of really developing those skills to be able to paint in, in a variety of different styles. Right. So um, I kind of like that idea, and I, and, and I hope that, you know, that is an opportunity. I mean, like I said, I think more and more filmmakers are looking to hire artists for their particular sound and their particular approach. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's the grand pie-in-the-sky idea. I think at the end of the day, you really need somebody who can handle the nuts and bolts of what's required to shape drama using music, regardless of what style it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and even in a case like that, if I had to do, let's say, a, a trance track in the middle of my film score for what for a club scene or something, and if I just really couldn't come up with something and I decided to outsource that piece, I think I would still want to be the one to mix it and master it and give it the same sound treatment that the rest of the film has so it at least sounds in continuity. Right, yeah, that's a good insight to kind of put your stamp on it. Yeah, to kind of... You know, and that's another great thing that, um, you know, working with professional musicians, like you can write, you know, let's say you want to get a really authentic bluegrass track again, to bring mm-hmm. back that example, mm-hmm. you know, you can create some basic chord changes and the tune and the basic shape of it, which has your musical sensibility, and then just hire 
fantastic musicians to come in and, you know, record it in a way that captures some of your musical essence while mm-hmm. bringing that idiom and their style to create the authentic kind of sound, whatever the case may be. Right. And you see that a lot, especially on larger projects where you have bigger budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, the composer can, you know, whistle a tune into an iPhone and then the musicians can come in and actually turn it into a very authentic realistic you know piece of music in that particular idiom yes absolutely now you've worked with howard for a while but before that you worked with philip glass for a while didn't you yeah i worked for so i um i went to school in colorado i did my undergrad at a liberal arts school called colorado college and studied music and i've been doing music ever since i was young you know all Mm -hmm. kinds of music you know i played flute and youth symphony. I uh, took piano lessons from a young age, and then I got into drums and started playing jazz and progressive rock. And then I got to college, and I got into world music and played in gamelans and experimental bowed piano ensembles and African drums. And then I was playing in my band. And my parents were always super supportive about music. I told them I wanted to major in music in school. And they were like, that's a great idea, <laughs> you know, Good. which I think is pretty rare, you know? Yeah, it, it but, makes so a I big got difference. Out of, yeah, totally. To have that kind of encouragement and support system. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, they were always a little worried about how I was going to actually make a living, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. they still supported me. And so then I was working in, you know, clubs and doing live sound and playing piano in restaurants and doing some post-production work. And uh, I was pretty young and my grandparents were started to get a little concerned that I, my lifestyle was hanging out in nightclubs till one o'clock every night, like mixing shows and doing all this stuff. And they said, oh, you really need to go back to school. If you want to go back to graduate school, then we'll help you pay for the tuition. So I said, great, that's an easy sell. So I, uh, it was like New York or LA. So I went to New York and I studied at NYU and I got a master's degree there studying music technology Mm. and with a kind of like a film scoring bent, you know? So I really started digging into, um, what that was all about and as well as just being in the world of new york and soaking up that culture and 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 all that music and everything and uh now i'm actually losing track uh giving you my backstory here of Mm -hmm. uh what your question was (laughs) (laughs) uh to, to philip glass yeah oh right and so um I I would I'm a very inspired and influenced by minimalism and philip glass is always very inspiring to me and he was right around the corner from NYU so I just started bugging the studio and asking if you know I could do an internship there and so they first they accepted me as an intern and then I worked there uh, as an intern for a few months and then as a studio assistant and it was really cool like uh, Tony Visconti like David Bowie's engineer had the B room so like my first day of work at Looking Glass Studios which was Philip Glass's studios I get on the elevator and I'm like oh my gosh, that's Tony Visconti in the elevator next to me. And I'm like, I want to say something. I'm like so nervous, you know, but in New York, you know, you never say hi to celebrities. And right, you yeah. just ignore them more than <laughs> And so I'm all excited about it. And then David Bowie gets in on the elevator. Oh, and I'm wow. like, okay, now this is amazing. And I'm like, where could they possibly go? And they all get off on the same floor and walk right in front of me into the studio. So it was really a cool place to be working. Um, yeah. I was, uh, the composer Nico Muley was working there at the same time as me who 
was just amazing. I mean, that kid is a really phenomenal composer and musician. I mean, just watching him write an email is an impressive <laughs> task. You know? So to be part of that environment and in that world for a while was really inspiring. Um, while I was there, he did um, a movie called Secret Window. He did a movie called Taking Lives. He did a timpani concerto. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. Uh, sadly, um, that studio is is now closed. That um, you know, it's a valuable piece of real estate in Soho. So, like every other studio in Manhattan, it's shut its doors. But for the time, it was really fantastic, and I created some great friends and uh, people in the industry there that I still keep in touch with today. That's awesome. And, you know, a lot of studios are closing, and I've been watching that in L.A. going on for the last few years. And uh, The Bridge just closed uh, in L.A. a couple of months ago and uh, had a great a great time there. We uh, recorded an episode of Scorecast there when I, like, the week I moved to L.A. And uh, it's a shame to see some of these, because the, the sound, there's so much history, and they're, they're just beautiful places. And, and the energy in those rooms is just, it's like nothing else. Yeah, it's amazing that those, I mean, the bridge was like a busy studio. I mean, they had a lot of work going in and out there. And mm-hmm. the fact that it's just no longer, um, you know, a profitable business. But, yeah. you know, the thing about the music industry is like the music industry has never been a profitable business. You know, there's right. never been anybody who's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go be a musician because it's a great way to make so much money. And <laughs> right. People, you know, see it as like, oh, there's so many pop stars and rock stars. And there was amazing opportunities, especially in the 90s, you know, mm-hmm. when, when it was in its heyday. But, you know, there's never been a lot of opportunities to make tons of music. People just do it because they love to do it. And they don't really have a, you know, a choice to do it either way. Right. And that comes down to running studios as well. So I think a lot of people keep those studios going just out of pure passion yeah and i'm sure there's an element of nostalgia there you know i I was listening to an interview not too long ago where i heard that uh abbey road which is one of the biggest you know most commonly known studios in the world is is uh, getting subsidy from the government to stay open and i don't know if there's that much truth to that but just down the concept of that it really proves that it's more about nostalgia and who wouldn't want to record at abbey road yeah i mean it's like yeah, that's true. It is subsidized by the um, by the city as a uh, national historic location, and mm. you know they have tours that walk by and point to the studio. And then Abbey Road is also stretched out to you know they're providing their educational series, and um, you know Peter Cobbin has been developing a great set of plugins with the Abbey Road brand on mm-hmm. it. So there is a lot of that, which is the nature of I guess what studios have to do to. to to stay alive these days yeah which is sad because you know you get into this paradigm where everybody's just sitting in front of their computer screen and thinking oh this is how music is made Mm -hmm. and you get locked into the capabilities of what the technology can do and you lose sight of what's really possible with amazing musicians and amazing studios well i think you're missing a couple things you're missing one the the energy of working with other people you're missing that uh, creative uh, juices flowing from person to person, like you were talking about working within the team. Uh, I remember when I met Roger Glover from Deep Purple and, and Rainbow, and uh, he asked me what I did, and I told him, I said, well, I'm working on my, my I think I was on my seventh or eighth album at the time. And uh, he looked at me and he just said, I don't envy you. 
And for the longest time, I didn't understood, I, I couldn't understand what he meant. And then it kind of hit me as I've seen, you know, more footage of bands like Purple in the studio and how they really work together. What a, a beautiful, and I've played in bands, but it's usually one person comes up with an idea and everybody works on that idea. But they kind of right. all work on something together, and there's a unity and, and a musicianship with bands like that. It took me a long time to understand what he meant, and then I started just, just feeling sad. I'm like, well, maybe I should go find some other people. Yeah, bands are awesome. I mean, that was the most formative part of my music education was just playing in bands with amazing musicians and mm -hmm. really developing my skill set and understanding my music through the lens of other people that I respected. I think that, you know, people get so locked into the kind of, um, I mean, a classical music education, or not classical, but, a, you know, a traditional music education, I think, is very important, getting back to that craft idea that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. But the experience that you gain from, you know, improvising and playing with other musicians is a completely different side of understanding music, which is so instrumental in understanding how music works and how to write it, you know? Yeah. It, it's funny, too, because when I first heard Frameworks, which is your, your release, uh, the first thing I thought of was, wow, this really feels like a Philip Glass-style album. And that's not something that I say often. And I didn't know at the time that you had worked with Philip. I think I knew that probably at one point and had forgotten but it, it definitely it reminded me of, of his albums, uh, Glassworks, which is one of my favorite albums and maybe one of the, the reasons that I'm drawn to the style of music. But your, every song on your album is really a journey. It's not a bunch of notes being performed. It's not just something that it was, was intelligently written. But every single track has a flow from beginning to end. And you feel like you're at a starting point and you feel like you end somewhere, and you feel complete after each song. And I think that's pretty rare. Is that something you set out to do? Oh, uh, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that, because that was such an intention of mine, mm -hmm. to really create an album which had a shape from start to finish. I mean, in this world of streaming and singles and digital downloads, you know, the whole idea of releasing an album is almost a moot point. I mean... Like, you know, uh, Kanye's constantly, you know, adapting his album. He adds new tracks onto his album all the time or just releasing one single at a time or something or whatever mm -hmm. the case may be. So to be able to release an album and have an overarching kind of design to it and for that to actually translate to the listener makes me so happy. I'm so glad that comes through. And, and, and the design of the music was, um, well, it is influenced by, like, my personal style. And, and I do have a minimalism bent which is you know uh you know partly because i'm inspired by philip class as well mm. as like tons of other minimalist composers but also because i um uh so much of my music is so rhythmic based from my experiences as a drummer and right. also particularly studying world music mm -hmm. so i know that was the case for philip too he really spent years delving into you know indian classical music for me it was indian classical music and especially west african drumming and Balinese gamelan and those kind of more rhythmic based um, understandings of rhythm, understanding additive rhythms and polyrhythms and stuff like that very much inform my process. So it has that kind of musical styling and my stamp and my sound and almost all of my concert music shares that kind of design. 
But then the larger idea for the album was to create for each piece um, a point of inspiration, you know. And I find that when, when creating a piece of music, the hardest part is sitting down and figuring out what is this piece of music about? But mm-hmm. you can write a piece of music about just about anything, like, you know, pictures at an exhibition, you know, or the steppes of Central Asia, or traffic on the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. I mean, those are all elements and ideas behind pieces of music, and then how you shape those ideas into a larger musical structure is kind of the fun of it. So mm-hmm. for the, my album Frameworks, I approached each piece based on a um, geometric design, right. and I got really geeky. I found like this um, uh, website of like open source um public domain like geometric representations of mathematical ideas you know mm-hmm. and i would just go through it and just look at them for the actual aesthetics of it for like the beauty of how it kind of applied to a certain idea like um mapping a trajectory and the distance a trajectory goes based on gravity and velocity and all these kind of concepts and what that looks like is really a beautiful kind of thing because it's so tied into you know, logic and reason and the natural world. So once I had found each of these kind of concepts, I could then build the piece around it, you know, like the idea of like um, the Penrose stair, which is a, uh, you see a lot in like M.C. Escher drawings, which is like a stair that goes up and down at the same time and never really ends in any place. And so I based a piece called Ascending Order on that, which uses ideas of um you know kind of like shepherd tones and um things that go up and down you're not really quite sure where one thing is ending where one thing is beginning so to have that seed of an idea to shape the piece really creates a kind of structure to it you know and i'm so glad to hear that that kind of translates into the listening experience because uh i think that's a really cool way to think about music I think it is, too. I think it's a really fresh approach, too. Did you use any of the mathematical formulas that were used to create that shape in the actual music, or were you just basing it off of what the visuals told you? Yeah, it was more about, like, the uh, visuals, you know, and just being inspired by, like, more about the concept or the idea, you know. It's like, um, there's a piece called trajectory and the image was you know based on different velocities the distance it goes and the height that it goes if you're launching let's say a rocket into the air how long it takes before it comes back down again and looking at that image and then shaping the uh, the music to kind of follow that kind of shape you know to kind of have those arching kind of larger each trajectory is shooting off higher and higher making further distance extending the range of the music um, you know I have seen in the history of contemporary music where, you know, people will take the idea too far. Well, they'll say, oh, well, this piece is going to be based on what the natural scale would be based on the gravity on Jupiter if we were to <laughs> align these moons and right. all this kind of stuff. So they go too far with the concept, and then you listen to it, and you're like, yeah, that's cool and everything, but the music sounds lousy. I have no interest and has no emotional connection to it. Right. So I didn't want to get too rooted in the idea. I still wanted to make an emotional human connection to other people. So that was definitely more my design 
was through inspiration rather than through, um, you know, mathematical applications. Mm -hmm. Well, and that makes sense because a lot of times the mathematics of something doesn't necessarily translate musically. I've watched a lot of drum videos being a drummer and I've seen some amazing performances, but I look at some of those and go, I don't know how this actually translates musically. I don't know what you could do with it. It may be impressive for a drum solo, but beyond that, what function does it serve? And, and it doesn't necessarily apply to anything musically at all. Exactly. Yeah, I, that's great that we both have that drummer connection. That's, yeah. That's cool. I forgot that. Uh, yeah, um, I, I agree with you completely. It's funny. I spent you know, time when I was younger um, trying to figure out how to make music like almost like too complicated, you know. I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, this is going to be a really cool groove in seventeen eight, you know." <laughs> you yeah. use it, but it's like that people don't get down to seventeen eight, you know. It's like, what's the point? You know, I realized that your own intellect is getting in the way, and a yeah. lot of it is ego. And I think ego can be one of the most damaging things in the world to say, oh, I'm going to create music and show people how smart I am. Right. Oh, my gosh, that's such a terrible reason to make music. I always want to make music that comes to me almost from outside of me, through like a muse. Like, like the best ideas, musical melodies and approaches I've had have been when I'm, you know, hiking or in a beautiful place mm-hmm. or out of nature. Those are my biggest moments of musical inspiration and not me like overthinking how to apply some you know grand idea to show how smart i am you know right but i think i think it's kind of good maybe to go through that phase when you're younger because if you can make that realization then you're not going to go through that at a time where it's really critical that you don't go through that right yeah i agree completely it took me a long time to figure out how to make music that would really connect with people on a really human level and if I hadn't had those experiences delving into the over intellectual when I was younger I don't know if I would have found it yeah it's funny I I went to see the Graham Bonnet band play last night and and for those of you who don't know who Graham is he sang with Rainbow he sang with Alcatraz with Michael Schenker Uh, he's you've probably heard him on the radio at some point or another singing since you've been gone or all night long uh, I, I got the chance to, to meet with him after the show, and I said, you know, Graham, the thing that I've always loved about you is that you don't just sing a song. Whether you're in the studio, whether you're on the stage, you sing passion. I feel the lyrics of every song every time you sing it. And he said, I learned early on not to sing the lyrics, but to sing the story. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I got a shiver when he said that, because that's exactly what you and I are talking about now, is, you know, you can can write about what inspires you. You write the nature. But the thing that I was thinking, too, is with lyrics, it works a little bit different because you're being specifically guided. But with instrumental music, I might write that song about swimming in the ocean or being in a submarine exploring the Titanic. And you might listen to that song, and you might think about being able to fly and soaring through the air and looking at the tops of the mountains. And it doesn't matter because the music made you feel something. Right. Yeah, totally. I love that because you're both, and then that's, I think the importance of having design when approaching a piece of music is something that's shaping your process. It's bigger than you are. And it doesn't have to 
translate explicitly, but you can still feel the design behind it. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's really cool. Do you do you do what I do where you go through that? I don't want to know what they wrote it about because I have my own experience versus I really want to know what they wrote that about. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, they. Um, so I did like this up digital version of like liner notes for my album. It's like an album experience, mm-hmm. you know, so... Anybody that wants to, as fans of the music, you can really dig in and find out what the music is about. And you can see all these videos of me playing weird instruments Mm -hmm. and see the scores and the electronic remixes and all this kind of stuff. And for me, that's always been, you know, a real draw. Like, I remember when I was a kid, you know, you'd go get your CD and you'd come home from Virgin and you'd open up the CD and you'd be listening to it. And you'd be digging through the liner notes to find every little, like, nuance and detail about Mm -hmm. it, you know, to really, like, milk the experience for whatever it is. Right. And I still find that to this day, you know, like, I'll find a new artist that I really like. And then I just want to know everything there is to know about that artist, like, how she wrote her music, how she conceived of the ideas, whatever the case may be, like where she grew up and who she's friends with, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. For but, me, I really like being part of the artistic kind of experience. It, it used to be a crapshoot when, when LPs were the thing or even, even cassettes. Uh, you would never know if you were going to get anything at all. Sometimes it might just be a white sleeve and there's nothing on the inside of it. Sometimes you'd get a lyric sheet. Sometimes you'd get, you know, letters from the band would be in there. Uh, in, in the in, you know within the pictures and and it's I, I always enjoyed exactly like you said the albums where you could really feel connected to it and you could learn everything because we didn't have the internet back then and right. I I love what you did with the, with the making that so much available because it adds a level of realism and, and an element of you're not some sort of god that made a great album you're a guy like the rest of us and anybody can sit down and work hard and if they have those skills can come up with something interesting and still be a human being i think people tend to put artists and celebrities of a certain caliber as if they're above the rest of the people and this is a very human experience and you taking us along on that journey was it was a fascinating ride. I'm so glad you did that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm glad uh, you responded well to it. Yeah, the people who've gone through it, it's, so it's a seven-day experience for anybody who wants to know more about it. Mm-hmm. You sign up on my website, and then for each day, for seven days, I send you a link for that day's kind of musical experiences. So you get to log in, and you get exclusive access to all kinds of cool behind-the-scenes videos and live performances and see the scores and hear about the process behind it. And so it really allows you to kind of like dig in, you know, behind the music a little bit. So I'm glad that, you know, you connected with it. I think that I thought it was a really fun thing to do. And for me, um, the music, ideally, I don't care about having, you know, two million streams on Spotify. You know, I would much rather have a smaller community of, you know, a thousand people that are really invested in the music and really want to support me than just a blind, huge audience of people out in the world. So my goal was to, you know, show off who I am and then hopefully also make connections with other people, which has been part of the, one of the most rewarding parts of the experience. Like I had one guy who went through the album experience and he was a author you know and he wrote children's books Mm. and i have two girls they're eight and almost four now 
And he said, oh, let me send you these children's books that I've written. And sure enough, a few days later, his entire catalog of children's books show up. And my kids love them. We've had so much you know, fun reading these books together. And that's just one example of a lot of people that I've connected with on a really human level. And to think that, you know, in this faceless digital age, you can connect with people in that way through music, I think is one of the coolest things you could ever do with music, you know? Absolutely. And and it, especially working in film, you know that you don't get to see people enjoying your work very often. You might hear people talking about the movie, or they you might even hear them say that they like the score, but you really don't get to connect with your listeners and the people that you're working so hard to give that experience to. It's a very isolated and lonely profession, especially, I mean, unless you're touring. If you're touring and you can, you can do some fan interaction, that's different. But apart from that, true, yeah. you really don't. You know, when I was doing some research for my book and I reached out to some friends to get their thoughts on things, uh, I didn't know how many of them actually listened to my music because they didn't tell me. And then through the course of the conversation, right. they would tell me, oh, I really like this song of yours, or my kids fall asleep to your relaxation music. And I would never know that because people don't tend to make the effort to tell you. So you creating right, this experience, yeah. I'm really glad that you're getting some positive return on that. Yeah, and it's uh, amazing how people actually support you. You know, I've had a bunch of people. At the end of it, I, you know, I'm like, oh, it's a self-funded production. I'm really glad to make this connection with you. If you want to help support the music, here's a PayPal button. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Like, how many people will just click the PayPal button and just donate money because they're so happy with the experience and they want to make that human connection, you know? It's not hard to contribute to an artist these days. I mean, there's, there's sharing, there's, uh, you know, uh, reviews, there's feedback, there's donations, whether you're doing like a, uh, you know, a, a a, a PayPal button or like a, um, I can't think of what those accounts are called. Uh, Patreon. Pa the Patreon, yeah, thanks. Um, but, but really, one of the biggest things you can do is just tell people about it. If you think that they're going to yeah. connect with that, give them that experience. That's, the, to me, one of the biggest compliments you can give an artist. Totally, yeah, just to share it, for sure. Yeah, just to get more eyeballs and critical mass because it snowballs. You know, once mm -hmm. you reach a certain level, then, you know... You know, it, it, there's a tipping point where it really starts to escalate and your audience really starts to build. And you experienced that with the first song. Yeah, that was amazing. I hadn't really expected that response. But um, yeah, so I released the video of us in the studio with the first song in the album. And I put it on Facebook and I did, um, did some uh, targeted advertising on it. So I put some money into it and I said, okay put this music in front of people who also like this kind of music, mm -hmm. you know? And that was a learning curve for me because I was actually surprised at just how complicated Facebook's business manager is. It and is. trying to understand, you know, how to do that. But, you know, I spent four months writing the music for the album, then I spent six months figuring out how to market it and learning all that stuff and building out my website and working on my web design skills and, mm -hmm. you know, figuring out how social media targeted advertising works and digital marketing works and all that kind of stuff. But then once I figured it out, sure enough, I put the video on Facebook and... um because people liked it so much, it becomes really cheap to meet a huge audience. So I was running it for about a month, and it reached 200,000 people. You know? wow. I mean, it reached half a million people, but 200,000 people actually got watched the video. I think they count that as like 10 seconds of the video or something. But mm -hmm. then, you know, 25,000 people watched the video all the way through. 
And, you know, ideally, the way that digital marketing works, you know, if you have 250,000 people watch 10 seconds and then 25,000 people watch the whole thing and then 2,500 people sign up for your email list and then 250 people actually buy the merchandise, then your $100 or $150 you've spent on your social media advertising, you're getting like a 10 times return on investment because people are actually buying products from you and they're buying CDs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's it's amazing. Right. I don't even have a CD player and people still buy CDs just because they (laughs) want to have, you know... A memento. They want to have yeah. something to take home from the experience. There, there is still that. I mean, you know, even though that we live in a, in a digital age, uh, I think there's still something about having that physical piece that you can touch, that you can, you know, like like I used to take such great care of my albums, you know, even sliding them in and out of the shelf to make sure that they didn't get scraped up at the bottom. There's just a different care that you take as opposed to a digital file that, you know, if you delete it, you just go re-download it. There's no sense of responsibility or connection to it at all right you know yeah i love the idea that's and that's why you know people are like um oh yeah cds are dead or stuff but actually surprisingly cd sales of course they dropped precipitously after streaming started and Mm -hmm. after ipods and all that stuff but for the past couple years they've kind of leveled off from the research that i was seeing you know they're still you know i don't know four percent or five percent of the market or whatever it is but it's stayed that way you know people still buy cds especially in europe Mm -hmm. and um also especially in my demographic which is you know people like me i'm 39 so it's you know mostly my largest audience is you know men between the ages of 30 and 50, I think. So it kind of falls squarely into people like me. And those people actually buy CDs. You know, they still have CD players. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, one of the things, too, is that it's not just a matter of you putting out content, but everything that you put with it is quality. The video of the recording of the album has a really beautiful, mellow atmosphere to it. I mean, the way you lit the studio was very relaxing, and I think it suited the music beautifully. But there's also, you didn't shoot it in like 4K where everything is really sharp looking. It's got a nice uh, sheen to it that really just kind of makes it a mellow uh, experience that you can just, like the music, sit back and enjoy. Was that something that was strategic or was that just the camera you had? Um, so I had, I hired a friend of mine to bring in a camera cause you know, I was producing the music. It's a lot of work, you know, producing music. People think, Oh, it must be so fun to get in the recording studio or hanging out music, making music all day. It's always a lot of work. I mean, you have to yeah. be super paying very close attention. You know, you're working hard, you know, Is it, you know, whether it's an orchestra or a piano quintet, whatever the case may be, you're trying to get it done. Cause that studio time gets expensive, you know? Yes. So I, um, I've done a lot of endorsements with Mark of the Unicorn, mm-hmm. and um, so I spoke with them. I said, hey, let's do an endorsement video about people using Digital Performer and Motu hardware to create you know, contemporary classical music. And they're like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. And I said, okay, can you hire these video people and give me some money to, um, to do the production? And they said, yeah, sure, we'd be happy to do that. And so I had some money to work with for the video production. So I hired a videographer to come in, um, you know, just one guy with some handheld cameras, and he just really captured a nice vibe to it, you know. And then once I got all the footage, I was able to just cut things together. And when it all came together, it's also just, you know, the instruments are so beautiful, you know, and to be in a recording studio and see those beautiful acoustic instruments and their design and their, um, their performance 
just makes a real human connection. I think there's a real um, humanity that you can see behind those acoustic instruments. Absolutely. And, and then when it also came down to the video, it was also like, I see so many musicians today who say, here's my music, listen to my music. You know, and you're just inundated. That's like the worst thing you can do as a musician is run out to people and say, listen to my music, go stream it on iTunes, go stream it on Spotify. Here's a link. You know, I mean, that's like, you're like, whoa, I'm getting like, I don't even know you. Why am I going to, you know, you're just spamming me with links. But if you say, hey, here's something beautiful, you know, and you put it out there, or especially if you create some kind of copy that really intrigues people or, you know, fits into their mindset or their kind of interests, then they'll watch it because you're not saying, oh, go listen to my music. You also almost have to build that relationship first because when it comes to music, people like to discover it, you Mm -hmm. know, like people like to think that, oh yeah, I found this artist and (laughs) I discovered it. Right. You know, if you're shoving it down somebody's throats, they're immediately just going to get turned off. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure you get the same thing I do where you'll get somebody requesting you as a friend on Facebook and, you know, you see maybe you, you know, you have some common friends or whatever and they're a musician. So obviously they're reaching out. And uh, I, whenever I accept somebody, I typically, you know, if I'm in a good mood, which I usually am, I'll just send them a nice little, hey, you know, thanks for reaching out. It's really nice to meet you. Uh, and totally. then I don't hear anything. And then a week later, I'll just get a like my page link. Or they'll just send right. me a link to their SoundCloud. Like no, no buying me dinner first. No, you know, no getting exactly, to know me. Just yeah. here, uh, here, uh, like me and do something for me. Yeah, exactly. There's a bit of a courting process involved there. You know, you want to. Uh Make a relationship before you start jamming links down people's throats. Well, sure, because unless your music truly is the most amazing thing since sliced bread, you're fighting an uphill battle getting me to like it just because of the way you presented it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, I I love, too, that what you included was not just the high-res copies of the songs uh, in WAV format, but you also gave us some bonus remixes and some demos that were really interesting, especially when you compare them to the original song. Uh, I, I thought that was a great uh, addition to the content and also getting uh, giving us the score to watch as well. Yeah, thanks. I think it's really fun for even like, and just in terms of the scores, like for non-musicians. I mean, this comes back to my background in, in orchestration and doing music preparation, but the look of a score, like the printed sheet music, is almost a, you know, an artistic output in its own right, regardless of what it even sounds like, mm-hmm. you know. So to be able to share that and to be able to kind of see uh, music's design and the way that the sheet music is laid out is, I think, really fun for musicians and non-musicians. And for the musicians who really want to dig into the music, now there you can see that's how the music was put together. And you can kind of get a sense of how it works if you want to perform it yourself or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And then the electronic remixes was a little, you know, um, dicey because it's like, I, here I am appealing to a market of people that like contemporary classical music. And then I'm taking, you know, some of those tracks and reinventing it as like, thundering frenetic electronica you know so it's kind of like there's a bit of a disconnect there Mm. but i think that's cool to not kind of frame yourself within one particular kind of style and to be able to 
explore a musical concept within different constructs. I think that was fun. So hopefully people dig it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it shows, too, the versatility of music, that you can you can put it in different formats and reach different audiences. But then there's there's times, I think, when people cross the line. Like, I walk the Vegas Strip a couple times a week. Otherwise, I would literally just sit in a chair day and night. And I, mm. I hear a lot of techno remix versions of regular songs. And I'll hear something like In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins with a techno beat or White Flag by Dido. And I think this is not, you know, I don't, I don't mind people playing with music a little bit, but you're taking something that's emotional and just sucking that out of it, which is the entire point of the song. <laughs> There's a difference yeah. between playing it, I think, in a little bit different of a format like what you did, because it's tasteful and still respectful of the original piece. But I think a lot of it just these days just goes way too far. But I'm not like a I'll go to a club and dance kind of guy either. So maybe it's just not sure, something yeah, I'm going to connect with. Yeah. The other thing I thought was really impressive is that you had mentioned in one of the videos that you wrote something for piano that was beyond your playing skills. And I love that you actually went out and found another piano player, especially considering you're trained in piano performance. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a great piano player. You know, like I said, um, I used to play in restaurants. Um, like, if I was going to really impress somebody and, like, sit down, then, then, like, playing drums, people are like, whoa, that guy's a good drummer, you know? With piano, I can impress people about for, like, 15 or 20 minutes. Like, when I was living in Colorado, I'd play in restaurants. Mm -hmm. Then as soon as I moved to New York, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm way out of my league here. I just never really had the um, dedication. I mean, if you really want to be a really successful and accomplished performing musician, you just have to put the time in, you know? I mean, the players that I know are really good at it spent, you know, eight, ten hours a day for at least, you know, five, ten years really learning and perfecting their instrument. And I always just had too many interests, you know? I play, like, you know, six or seven different instruments, but I play them all only to a certain degree of ability, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I hired an incredible pianist, too. He was like a Grammy winner. And I kind of called in some favors with um, some friends because I didn't have a big budget for the album. I was using money I made doing advertising music from that year. I kind of set it aside, and I'd landed a couple commercials, so I had like a nice little um, pile of extra income that I kind of earmarked just for this album purposes. I just kind of loved the idea of like, taking music and, and you know that I'm using for corporations and advertising purposes and then using the money the proceeds from that work to create art I thought was just a beautiful kind of idea yeah but nonetheless so I hired this um, amazing pianist Alan Yevnai to play the parts and it was also just because I knew that I needed to produce the sessions, you know. Mm -hmm. I needed to be sitting there listening and being like, okay, bar 24, we have poor ensemble. Bar 26, we need, the intonation isn't so great there. At bar 30, let's take that up a dynamic. Like all that stuff that's involved in just like producing music. And I knew I wouldn't be able to do that if I was trying to read the piano parts and play the music and everything. Yeah, that's, that's very intelligent. Did, uh, did any of the musicians have any input on the performance, or was it pretty much you just gave them everything that they needed and they kind of played it as, as is? The thing that I love about you know working with musicians, especially like studio musicians who have that sort of you know, the pedigree and the understanding is, you know, uh, you can just put the sheet music in front of them and they'll just play what they see and put their emotion and their experience into it. Like, I also have experience of recording in the studio with bands and you get into the studio with a band and you say, okay, these are the chord changes, this is how the song goes, 
what should we do for the drum line or, or you know, what, what should be the drum group or what should we do for a bass line? And you're kind of like figuring it out there on the spot and everybody's contributing. But the beautiful thing about sheet music and to have that tradition of notation is you can just put the scores and parts right down in front of them and they'll just play it exactly as they see it, you know? <clears throat> Which is not to say that those players didn't bring amazing emotion and quality of tone and performance style to the music. I mean, that's obviously the whole reason why I went into the studio to record with them. But that is a wonderful thing about sheet music is that, you know, there's all the details is just laid out right in front of you on the page. Sure, but there's still a lot of variance. I mean, it, you, it might tell a, a violinist, okay, you're going to bow and here's how long you're going to bow and you're going to bow this note, but it doesn't tell you exactly how much pressure to put on it. There is some element of what the musician feels in that moment with the rest of the musicians playing around them. Oh, definitely, yeah. And I hope, hopefully I didn't discount that contribution from the musicians because that's the most beautiful thing about recording with live musicians. There's a great... Um, when I was working with Philip Glass, he did a timpani concerto with this uh, percussionist named... I think her name is Evelyn Glenier. Um, and this amazing percussionist. And she did this demonstration where she was playing uh, steady 16th notes on a snare drum. Mm-hmm. You know? It's not that terribly musical or interesting. It's just... Ticket, 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 ticket. And then she showed how she could take that and interpret it through her own musicianship and took that most basic, simple idea and turned it into something just amazing, you know? So the capabilities of a talented musician to be able to reinvent something on the page to make it their own is beyond words, you know, I mean, and that's the amazing thing about just working with incredible musicians. Yeah, and and certainly a trust factor there as well, I would imagine. Yeah, it's true, totally, yeah. And I I know that musicians, once they have their chosen collaborators, they stick with those collaborators for a very long time. Yeah, I I would think so, because it's once you build that trust, you really don't want to have to do that over with somebody else, unless you're adding to the team. Right, yeah, well said. I think it's fascinating because the album from beginning to end, it's very coherent. It's not, it's not like a bunch of individual songs in the same style. It really feels like a complete thing from start to finish, almost like a musical story that you just fill in. Like I said, whether you feel you're flying or whether you feel you're in the water, uh, you fill in the story yourself, but there is definitely a consistency and coherency to the music. And I think from from the writing to the mixing. But did you write it in Sibelius or did you write it by hand first? Um, so I'm, let's see. So most of the pieces started uh, with me at a piano writing out the themes, you know. So I would usually like, I would find this kind of geometric idea or concept and then I would stew on it in my head until and this is one of my favorite things about writing music is that sometimes like a melody or a musical idea comes to you and it feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere you mm-hmm. know it just like all of a sudden you have this idea in your head or you hear a melody or something like that and it's just like oh my gosh that's incredible i love it it's so beautiful i don't even know where it came from i just it's kind of there mm-hmm. and so i would sit at the piano and kind of take those ideas out of my head and just write them out on a piece of paper to sketch out the idea of what it was going to be you know whether that's just the main melody or the chord changes or even just drawing squiggly lines about how I the shape I want the piece to look like. And then I would take that, and because I have this film scoring background, I'm really used to working in sequencers 
So I would take that basic seed of an idea and then arrange it and stretch it out and pull, flush it out into a composition of my sequencer just to create the idea of like, this is where all the notes are going to go. Mm-hmm. And then you take that and you put it into Sibelius and you can really shape the, um, the shape of the thing. And that's when you really start thinking about how do I want the phrasing of this to be? How do I want you know, these different instruments to interact with each other? What's the line that I want to bring forward? Mm-hmm. And so that's a fun part of the creative process. Sure. And then you go into the studio and you get to make further creative choices by how the players are performing it. And then in the mix, there's a lot of creative choices too, like mm-hmm. the microphone choices that I selected. I knew that if it was an intimate moment, then I could, you know, use more of the um, close pairs of microphones. There's a bloom line pair right in the center of them, and I could get a really tight, intimate kind of sound. And then when I wanted it to be a little bigger and more expansive, I could rely on the room mics and the outriggers to really widen the mix and stretch things out, you know? So the creative process goes, and that's what's so fun about making music, is it's not just about sitting down and writing down the tune on the score, but so many stages along the way of writing it and then arranging it and then doing the notation and then producing it and then mixing it and even the mastering process you know it really kind of allows for so many different points of creativity sure and were you doing the sequencing in digital performer yes yeah i do um for all my pro audio work for my film when i'm doing music editing um or recording and mixing it's almost always in pro tools but my main sequencer is definitely digital performer. That's where I, you know, actually create music. You know, I've, I, Pro Tools is a little more clinical. I'm doing audio editing and mixing, and you know, doing session templates and prepping files and conforming. You know, it's a little bit more technical. But digital performer for me is just, you know, extremely creative. You know, it just really allows me to kind of come up with cool ideas. Sure, and that's made by Mark of the Unicorn, and you've had a, a long history with them. Yeah, I've been um, using their software, gosh, since, you know, maybe 15 years now, since DP 2.5. And I was uh, teaching music production at NYU, um, and I started to get into Logic because I had, like, an education discount. It was more accessible for the students to purchase it. Mm -hmm. So then I started getting into Logic and digging into that. But when I left my teaching job and started working, you know, full-time in the film industry, I was doing so much work with Howard Shore, and he was using Digital Performer, that I went back into it full throttle and, you know, just let my Logic license expire, and I've just been using it exclusively. And the thing that I love about Motu is that they're so supportive of their artists. Like, you know, Logic is made by Apple. They don't really care that much about what musicians are doing with their products, whereas... Motu is only making products for musicians. They make music hardware, music software. So they've just been always super supportive of me, you know. And um, I went to NAM with them a couple of years and did those um, presentations on how I use their software for uh, the Hobbit movies. Mm-hmm. And they've given me their hardware to test out. And they've just been really supportive, including their support on my um, album that I just did, providing financial support and doing endorsements and all that kind of stuff for them. So yeah, they've been a great creative partner. Yeah, and they always have this beautiful spot at NAM, this this nice little carpeted area with this large uh, monitor and uh, I I didn't see you because that was the year before I met you but uh, when I was there I got to see one of Danny Elfman's assistants doing a, a similar presentation for one of the movies that he had worked on 
And uh, they're a really quality company. Every representative I've talked to at Motu has been knowledgeable, friendly, excited about their products, uh, as opposed to, you know, you talk to a lot of companies at NAM, and, you know, halfway through the first day, they're tired. They've, they've kind of lost that drive. But Motu, you go at, at 10 in the morning, you go at 6 at night, they're, they're energetic. They love what they do. And that really says a lot yeah. about their, their company. That's cool, yeah. Yeah, they have a real intellectual curiosity. You know, they really want to like push the envelope and figure out what's next and what's new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan. They're cool. Yeah, I kind of look at Isotope the same way, and and you know, I, I use a lot of Isotope stuff. I've worked in Digital Performer a little bit, but I'm so used to Sonar that I've just kind of stuck with that. Uh, I do sure, have. Yeah. They're all the same, really. Yeah, they are. I I do have DP on on my computer, and there are some features I love about it. Um, but, you know, to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to start learning another DAW when I've always got a couple projects going, uh, it's just being lazy. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I look at them the same way I do Isotope. I mean, they seem to be like, what can we do next that isn't happening? What are people going to want? You know, what can we do to make it better? Instead of just saying, what can we do to make a lot of money? Or what can we do to dictate? I don't get that feeling from them at all. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, they're really kind of trying to push the envelope a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I could talk to you all day and ask you a million questions that I'd love to know the answers to. But uh, before we wrap things up, I do have two more things for you. Uh, you've been doing this for a while, and you've obviously put in a lot of effort to get where you're at. And you, you made some bold moves, which I really respect, because I think a lot of times you need to make bold turns. I want to be an intern. I want to be an intern. I want to be an intern until they just say yes. And the next thing you know, you're in an elevator right. with David Bowie. Uh, <laughs> right. But what, what kind of things, and now seeing how much things have changed and where things are at today, what advice would you give somebody who's kind of just getting started and looking at getting into this business in, in really any aspect? Yeah, it's, it's so d- difficult for composers especially, because I think we're all kind of cut from the same cloth, and we're all pretty happy to or happiest like in our studios making music or at the piano or playing our instruments and you're not typically like this really extroverted outgoing kind of person you know Mm -hmm. but the extroverts i find are the ones that win out at the end of the day the people that are really willing to get out there and make connections and meet people and you know put themselves out there are the ones that are actually making connection. Otherwise, you're just kind of hidden away in your studio and nobody knows about you. Right. Whether that's actually going out to events and making connections with people or, you know, putting yourself out there on social media. You know, it's like, I don't, you know, I'm nervous about, you know, trying to take my art and put it out in front of people and market it to people and make videos about myself. I'm, I was very hesitant to do that, but you kind of have to make that leap because otherwise, people aren't going to know about it, you right. know? And some people might say, oh, what's he doing? He's taking classical music, and he's trying to, like, market it on Facebook or something. <laughs> I, I guess people probably don't say that, but, you know, because everybody does it. Sure. But nonetheless, you know, there is a, there is a reason to be, have a hang-up about it. But I would say that, you know, we work so hard to develop the skill sets of how to make music. And I spent years and years studying how to perfect the craft of making music. And I didn't spend enough time perfecting the craft of music business and music marketing. Mm-hmm. So to have an understanding of how to get your music out there, how to share it with people, and how to just connect with people on a human level, I think is paramount. You know, I mean, sure, you have to develop your skills, but you know, sometimes I find, you know, I've worked with composers before, 
who are working on, you know, big projects, you know, and have, you know, great connections and, and relationships with the filmmakers and just have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> just have like so little skill set whatsoever. And we think, oh, if I just get really good, if I'm just the greatest and I just do the best that I can be, then I'll be successful. It's like, yes, that is the ideal, but there's just so much noise out there. Mm-hmm. That you also have to learn how to be a human and connect with other people. So I guess, I don't know, that would be my advice. And at least, you know, to, to not only focus on the music, but focus on how to make those relationships as well. Well, and I think you've walked a walk because you spent four months writing your album and six months figuring out how to market it before you put it out there. You know, I think the, right. the thing is we yeah, write exactly. something and we want to upload it to SoundCloud as soon as we finish it. We don't even want to master it. We just want to get it out there so people can hear it. That's the tendency. But... Yeah, you, know, you got it, especially if you're doing a, a, a larger release. I mean, even if you're just doing one song, you want to promote it properly. But if you're doing an album, if you're doing a movie, uh, anything really, you want to you want it to be the best it can be. And in, unless you're specifically uploading a demo and saying, "Hey, this is a demo of something I'm working on. What do you guys think?" You, sure. it really should be something that people are are going to be interested to hear, and they're going to associate everything you are with the quality of that piece. If it's staticky, if it's unbalanced, if it's half of it's just in the left ear, they're not going to take you seriously. Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you have to actually know what you're doing. I mean, you really need to develop those skill sets and perfect your art. And that the thing that I love about music is that you can spend an entire lifetime working on it and never fully master it. There's always more to understand in terms of different styles of music or approach of composition or world music or how to record it and recording techniques and production techniques you know there's a, such a world of depth of knowledge that you have to have a real passion for it and you have to develop those skill sets mm-hmm. you know yeah i agree i think it's a balance i mean you you obviously have to have the artistic side and the creative side but then you have to have that business sense nowadays unless you can find a way to partner with somebody but it seems like everybody wants the musician to be the one that takes the risk you know, uh, uh, we we as a musician go, well, you know, I this is my passion, so I live it. And then you look at a PR company and they aren't going to say, well, we'll ride your passion with you and then we'll just, you know, split the profits. It's, you know, here's what you're going to pay us, whether we're any good or not, whether we get you results or not. We as the artists take all the risk. Right, yeah. And I think that artists, and, and my philosophy, now I'm also kind of anti-authority and <laughs> community-driven, but I think for artists today, don't, you know, we're all so quick to be like, oh, if I could just get a record deal, then I would have it. Or if yeah. I could just get my music in this big movie, or if I could just... So that means we're constantly courting the favor of those in power and saying, oh, if, you know, let me just suck up to this record executive or this movie mm. executive or, you know, but... If you can do it yourself, it's so much more rewarding, you know? Sure. I mean, it's like, take it upon yourself. You have all the tools. I mean, the world of, you know, music industry has been entirely democratized through the internet and social media. Just take it upon yourself and don't try to put all your hedge, all your bets on, like, somebody else that you think might be more successful or mm-hmm. lead you to success because it never really works that way. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. 
Well, James, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, the last question I have for you is where can people find you and follow you? I know you've got your website, jamesizemore.com. And everybody, that's where you can go to sign up for the album and get on that seven-day email schedule. Uh, totally worth it. You get high-quality files of, of all the songs. You get all the background stuff. Uh, it's it's really a journey that you're going to want to take every morning, and uh, it was for me it was it was just so much fun, and I've saved all the emails, so in a year or so I'm probably going to just do it again. Well, thank you, Scott. Yeah, yeah, that's the best place to go, and you can connect to all my socials through my website, jamesizemore.com. You know, find me on Facebook, facebook.com/slash jamesizemoremusic, or look for James Sizemore Music on YouTube. You can uh, track me down in any of those locations and uh, check out some of the videos and hear some of my music and some of my work on film and some of my album stuff. So, uh, yeah, dig into it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, James. I hope that you'll come back and visit again. Yeah, Scott, it's been really great talking to you. Definitely on the same wavelength, you know. In, in this world, it's, it's sometimes rare to find other people you can really connect with on a human level. So I'm very grateful to, uh, to be on your podcast and be able to have a conversation with you and just really dig into everything music and music industry. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And it, you're right, it is hard to find those people. And when you do, you, you just don't let them go. So you're stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Cool, man. Thanks. Have a great right, day, my well, friend. Good talking to you. You too. Wow, that was a great interview and a great time for me, and I'm glad James enjoyed it, and I hope you guys enjoyed it too. When you get a chance, uh, go to jamesizemore.com and go check out his album. That experience that he has, that seven-day experience, is pretty incredible. I did that whole thing, and every day it was like a, you know, a new present to wake up to every day. And I enjoyed it immensely. And uh, if you like the album, if you like James, you will too. So go to jamesizemore.com and check that out. I'll have the link also in the show notes. Also, uh, I'm going to try and see if I can do it on either my like page or my Facebook group and uh, have uh, the show notes in there with the links as well. So if you can't find it on the site or on iTunes, check out my uh, Facebook pages and uh, see you in the next episode. <laughs>